0: Good morning, everybody. It is so good to see you. A friend of mine in Germany loves corny old jokes. Knowing that, um, that people right now could use a laugh, he shared some of his favorites with me this week. So here's your bad German joke for the week. You ready? A, uh, a doctor and a computer scientist, a surgeon, a computer scientist, civil engineer were all together at church meeting of fewer than 10 people, of course. And, uh, and they were discussing which is the most venerable, which is the oldest profession. The surgeon said, God's creation of Eve required surgery. Therefore, mine is obviously the oldest profession. To which the engineer jumped in and said, but even earlier in Genesis, we read that God created order out of chaos. This was the earliest and most spectacular application of civil engineering. Therefore, sister, you're wrong. My profession is older. The engineer, I mean, the computer scientist just smiled. And after a pause, he said, ah, but who do you think created the chaos? (laughs) I think he works for our uh, streaming company. Anyway, as we ask in our notes, um, how did all life come into being? Jokes aside, all people of all times have wondered just how life was formed out of chaos. This may be one of the most important things that one ever thinks through. So let's do so now. There are four possible answers. And there are really only four possible answers. The first option is that matter has always existed. Uh, The universe has absolutely no origin. The second possibility posits that all was made by a personal good creator... Uh, James Boyce, my old acquaintance, summarizes it well. He says, everything came from this second idea. This is what it teaches. Everything came from a personal something, and that personal something was good, which he points out corresponds to the Christian view. Third option is that everything came from a personal something, but that something is wicked, flawed, or evil. Fourth, The fourth idea is that dualism has always reigned. Um, Whether moral or amoral, uh, personal or impersonal, there's a light dark that created all life. All right, you see the four possibilities. All right, let's think. Number three can be eliminated right off the bat. Yes, it is philosophically possible, but no serious thinker has ever held to option number three. Dr. Boyce explains the reason. While it is possible to think of evil as a corruption of the good, it's not really possible to think of good as having emerged out of evil. There's nothing for good to come from if only evil exists, close quote. So you can eliminate the third option. We can also eliminate the fourth option. Dark and light cannot be equally beneficial fighting against one another and somehow creating life. Just think of Star Wars. Star Wars unwittingly exposes the illogic of dualism. Think about it. Every single Star Wars movie cycle ends with the good side in triumph. If that were genuine, it would end all life, just as a triumph of the dark side would. That's why... That's why they dabbled in midichlorians to try and reestablish some, some logic. That failed as well. The fact that dualists use the terms good and evil reveals the inherent weakness. If they think, if they mean by that, that each side thinks of itself as good and the other side as evil, then there must be no such thing as right and wrong. But, but life argues against that. Creatures intrinsically respond to a universal code of right and wrong. Let's illustrate it, wherever you are, if you're if you're not alone, if there are more than one person in the room, everybody stand right now. Everybody stand up. Come on, stand up. All right. Now, ever you listening? All right. Everybody have a seat, except for the youngest person in the room. The youngest person has to remain standing. Okay. The others can the others can be seated. Youngest person has to remain standing. Very good. All right. Now. Youngest person, I bet this is leading to some hilarious comments on the live stream. Um, all right, youngest person, how does that seem to you, right? No, it's not fair. You're exactly right. Okay, have a se- make a seat for them, please. Go ahead. You can be seated, youngest person. Youngest person, a-, a brilliant thinker named C.S. Lewis agrees with you. Look what he wrote. It's from a book called Mere Christianity, wonderful book. He said, all people say things like this. That's not fair. That's my seat. I was there first. Leave him alone. He's not doing you any harm. Give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. Come on, you promise. People in every culture say things like that every day, educated people as well as uneducated children as well as grown-ups. Now, what interests me, says Dr. Lewis about all these remarks, is the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior does not happen to please him. He's appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about. And, and the other man very seldom replies to bleep with your standard. Nearly always he tries to make out that what he's been doing does not really go against the standard or if it does, it's some special excuse for him. The most remarkable thing is this. When you find a man who says he does not believe in a real right and wrong, you'll find the same man going back on this a moment later. He may break his promise to you, but you try breaking one to him, and he will be complaining, it's not fair, before you can say Jack Robinson. Close quote. He's right. So that leaves us with only two possibilities. Now, the first view, the universe had no origin. That is the dominant idea in the world today. Matter always has been because, because there just can't be any other explanation. Uh, most theories of macroevolution add that uh, that simple matter changed into ever more complex matter by the magic of long periods of trial and error. There are numerous problems with this popular option. Uh, one of the most serious problems is the problem of entropy. Uh, your parents can explain that to you, kids. Entropy, uh, here's a definition for you. It's the observable truth, and this is very observable in the world everywhere. Matter naturally decays into lesser organization. Without an outside organizing agent, matter does not self-allocate into more form and complexity. The other huge problem is Personality. An impersonal, eternal universe seems unequipped to explain the personality that we see evident in the world. Francis Schaeffer, brilliant thinker of the 20th century, he put it this way. The assumption of an impersonal beginning can never adequately explain the personal beings we see all around us. And when men try to explain mankind on the basis of an original impersonal, humanity soon disappears. So we're left with one perspective, that of a personal good Organizing creator, which is precisely what one finds in the Apostles' Creed. Let's read it together, shall we? I, all together, all together with me, ready? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, In this series, you and I are examining the claims and the scriptures behind this ancient creed, the Apostles' Creed, and today we're considering the maker of heaven and earth, God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Is there a creator? Where did all come from? Isaiah 45 gives a brilliant answer. Open your Bible to Isaiah chapter 45. It's right about the middle of your Bible. Go to Isaiah chapter 45, and for time's sake, we're just going to read two verses. I recommend the whole chapter to you. We'll read two verses right now, verse 12 and verse 18. Isaiah 45, God speaks, I made the earth and created humans on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded everything in them. Verse 18, for this is what the Lord says, the creator of the heavens, the God who formed the earth and made it, the one who established it he did not create it to be a wasteland, but he formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. If you have your notes uh, pulled up <clears throat> excuse me, or printed out, you'll see my summary. I wonder how many of you jumped out of your skin just hearing somebody cough on a live stream. You'll see my summary. God is the creator, Lord, and there is no other. My German pal, who, uh, who likely is listening right now with far more glee than any German should ever really show, he also had a joke for this. Um, he, uh, he had this joke. He said, one day a group of scientists got together and decided that man had come a long way and no longer needed God. So they picked one scientist to go and tell God that they were, they were done with him. And the scientist walked up to God and said, God, we've decided we no longer need you. We're to the point that we can clone people, we can do many miraculous things, so why don't you just go on and get lost? God listened very patiently and kindly to the man. After the scientist was done talking, God said, very well, how about this? Let's have a man-making contest. To which the scientist replied, okay, great, but God added, now we're going to do this just like I did back in the old days with Adam. Scientist said, Sure, no problem. And he bent down and grabbed himself a handful of dirt. God looked at him and said, No, 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 no. You go create your own dirt. Uh, oh, such a bad joke. All right. Isaiah 45 declares the logical truth God, the Father Almighty, is the maker of heaven and earth, including all the dirt. Further, this chapter brings up two corollary truths. Oh, these are beautiful. Humans are desired in creation. And the Creator speaks. These are so very important. God made humans. They are desired in creation, desired. Remember what the Creator said after humans were added uh, to the earth? Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and it was what, everybody? Very good indeed. In his own image, God made humanity. That took creation from good to very good. But I, I know what you're thinking. In your, um, <clears throat> in your bad imitation of a German joke lover, you're thinking, but Pastor Van, that was before sin. God surely doesn't think humans are desired on earth anymore. Great question. Thank you, Holger. Um, notice the Isaiah text comes after the fall of mankind, after sin. Sin is a reality on earth, and yet God is proud of making people. He specifically said he formed the earth to be inhabited. This... This is the biggest problem with preservationism, which is growing in popularity on this planet. Uh, preservationists want little to no human interaction with the world. Um, following severely flawed philosophers like Rousseau, they think the planet is perfect without. Hum- they want a wasteland with no humans preservationists, now please understand what they are. Preservationists are not about conserving resources for human beings to shepherd. They are about preserving what they see as a world that would be ideal if there were no humans, except for the preservationists themselves, of course. But they make two serious mistakes, two serious problems with preservationism. As many have proven, Rousseau was wrong. The earth, like the people on it, is not idyllic. Nature is that word we use for creation, is marvelous, but it is inherently defaced. Just as the Bible says, sin affects all creation. Their second problem is that God specifically likes people to be engaged with creation. He said, I did not create it to be a wasteland. I formed it to be inhabited. In our house, there's a, uh, there's a kid playroom. It has great toys for all ages. It has a a large selection of games and a, a whole bunch of kids' books. When children use that room, I am deeply pleased, even if they leave a mess. Now, don't get me wrong. I want kids to learn to clean up their messes. But the messiness does not alter the joy I feel when what I created is being used by those for whom I made it. In the same way, humans are desired in God's creation. God is the only creator, Lord. He desires humans on earth, and the creator speaks clearly. Read the next lines. Um, You're in 45, verse 18. Go to verse 19, the first two lines. God says, I have not spoken in secret somewhere in a land of darkness. This is very significant. You know, people are always suckers for some secret, you know? You ever notice that? Humans are always searching for some special code or some secret hidden word. But such things will never, ever, ever lead to the truth because secret communication is not God's way. In creation and in scripture, he speaks clearly. Look, here's the testimony from the, uh, from the book of Romans. I'd like you to read Romans one twenty with me. You join me on the underlined text. Okay, kids? Join me on the underlined text. Romans 120. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. Thank you. The same is true of Scripture and Jesus. Think about it. Together, nature, the Bible, and Jesus make God's word clear. He speaks generally through nature, specifically through the Bible, and personally through Messiah Jesus. To all people, the Creator Lord speaks clearly. Now, turn back one chapter to Isaiah 44. Go back one chapter back to the West in your Bible. In Isaiah 44, God shows that He's more than just Creator. He is almighty. Almighty. Uh, Verse 6. Pick it up in verse 6, please. This is what the Lord, the King of Israel and its Redeemer, the Lord of armies, says. I am the first and I am the last. There is no God but me. Who, like me, can announce the future? Let him say so and make a case before me, since I have established an ancient people. Let these gods declare the coming things. These gods declare the coming things and what will take place. Do not be startled or afraid. Can I read that part to you one more time? Do not be startled or afraid. Have I not told you and declared it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God but me? There is no other rock. I do not know of any, says the God who knows everything. Verse 9. All who make idols are nothing, and what they treasure benefits no one. Their witnesses do not see or know anything, so they will be put to shame. Focus for a moment on the fact that God is the Lord of armies. The Hebrew here is so awesome. Just a few little words, it says so much. Uh, Lord of armies, that's the headline on the right side of our notes, if you're taking notes. It's two words in the original text, Yahweh Sava'at, Yahweh Sava'at. Yahweh is, is um, God's holy covenant personal name. Uh, we'll get to that more in a moment. It's translated Lord in English, it's always capitalized. Savayat is used in all Semitic languages, by the way, not just, uh, not just Hebrew, other Semitic languages too. It's, it's always used of, a, of an army of, of soldiers. But get this, get this. When Savayat is combined with a proper name, the meaning shifts to the person named as the leader of the forces. The big idea is how much power that person can bring to the fight. The, the idea comes into most languages, including ours. I mean, for example, take the phrase the Pacific Fleet in World War II. Okay. When I add Chester W. Nimitz before that, the emphasis suddenly is on him. The focus becomes how powerful that Texan was as commander-in-chief Pacific Fleet. So Yahweh Sava'ot tells us he is the commander-in-chief of all armies. No one else brings what he brings to the fight. No one else. While I was working on these texts, I received a note from a pastor friend in Mississippi. Listen to this. Thank you for this, Brad. This is brilliant. In the fall of 1527, a plague broke out in Luther's town of Wittenberg, Germany. In December 1527, Luther wrote to a friend, We're all in good health, except for Luther himself, who is physically well, but outwardly the whole world and inwardly the devil and all his angels are making him suffer. A few days later, Luther wrote that he was undergoing a period of anxiety that was the worst he had ever experienced. So he did what he usually did in times of trouble, Luther ran to the psalms and music. He penned Ein Burg," the famous song we translate as A Mighty Fortress, a heading from a broadsheet. Broadsheet something like a modern um, sheet music. The heading of a broadsheet of A Mighty Fortress, published in Augsburg in 1529, reads this, A Hymn of Comfort. Today, the words Ein Burg ist unser Gott are written on the castle church in Wittenberg. They serve as a reminder to Wittenberg and to us around the world that our God is a mighty fortress in times of trouble. All God's people said. And now we understand why Luther included that weird line that everyone changes these days. He wrote, Lord Sabaoth, his name. Because even during a plague, Luther wanted to remember, and he wanted us to remember, Isaiah 44. And God's unimaginable power as Lord Sava'at, the commander-in-chief of all heaven's strength. Now, back to Isaiah 44. There are a few other important points here. First, God is forever existing. God is almighty in part because he exists eternally. He alone exists eternally. That's what first and last means. It's a a really clever way of saying something has no beginning or end. All beginnings and all ends come from God himself. He wasn't just there at the first. He won't merely be there at the end. He is the beginning and the end. I know, I know. This is beyond our comprehension. So let's look at things from what we can do, from a human perspective. The Bible shows that humans will exist forever. We either will exist forever with the covenant creator or apart from him. But every human has a point of beginning, a created moment. The triune God never had that. He was and is and is to come. I was five or six years old when I first wrestled with this. All the way home from church, I remember this day vividly, all the way home from church, I kept asking my parents questions, trying to get my head around this concept of God's forever existence. I'm sure that I was incredibly frustrating the way you kids sometimes can be with your parents. In fact, I know I was driving them crazy because as soon as we pulled up in the driveway, mom bailed with some lame excuse like, uh, I, have to, I have to go make lunch. Um, Dad stayed in the car a little longer. And finally got frustrated. He said, Look, you keep objecting to everything I say. I can't explain it. It's just true. Why don't you just stay out here in the car until you you figure it out? You come inside once you figured it all out. Stubborn kid that I am, I stayed there a long time. A long time. I sat there and thought. And finally, after a while, something clicked and I went inside to eat cold food that mom had left at my place. So kids, listen, here's the point. If you need to go sit in the family car and think about this for a while, that's totally okay. You can, you can go right now. Just don't tear up anything in the car. Parents, you're welcome. Um, here's what finally tipped things for me that allowed me to go inside. God is singular. Verses 6 through 8 show us that. Let's stick with naval people for our example. Uh, naval admirals for 500, Alec. Um, for his discoveries... Did you know this? The Spanish crown gave a singular title to Christopher Columbus. They called him Admiral of the Ocean Sea. In modern parlance, that would mean Lord of all the world's oceans. No one else has ever received that title. It is unique. It is singular. God alone is the true eternal admiral. He knows everything, past, present, future. He knows the wisdom of the seas and all of space and beyond space-time. False gods do not know. They truly know nothing. In fact, that's what helped me as a little kid. I I probably remember that one Sunday so well because that that was the first time it began to dawn on me how little I know. Yahweh is singular. That's why, get this, in chapters 44 and 45 alone, God repeatedly says, He says almost a dozen times to Isaiah, I am the Lord, there is no other. I am the Lord. There is no other. He alone can and does truly know everything. Only he can tell the future. He is the only true anchor for our soul, the safe rock in our stormy ocean seas. All God's people said, amen. Now, stay in Isaiah 44, because through this passage, God shows the difference that is made by believing in him. By faith in God, one gains a whole lot. First, you gain a covenant Lord. Remember remember that name, Yahweh, right? Lord, Yahweh, it comes from the verb to be. Uh, It's it's most famously seen in the in the moment when Moses asks, Whom shall I say is sending me? And Yahweh says, I am that I am. Uh, That's where he uses the word to be there. But it's more, it's more than just self-existence, although it does mean that. Yahweh indicates a, a covenant relationship. This is the Almighty. The one real God who establishes a covenant love relationship with mere humans. Isn't that incredible? The self-existent Lord reveals by his chosen name. He reveals a desire to be in relationship with dependent created beings. Wow. At my university, there uh, there was a quiet library which almost no one else used. I loved I loved the Armstrong Browning Library. It was beautiful. It was quiet. And as an English minor, I got access to all the books and papers, even the really rare ones. Um, Baylor University's Dr. Uh, A.J. Armstrong was a leading authority on the British poets, Robert Browning and his wife, Elizabeth Barrett Browning. In the early 20th century, he began collecting their works. By 1951, he had enough to open this excellent facility. Uh, in here, there are many fascinating things, but... I just want to talk about one thing in that library. In here, you can read, if you're a researcher, the saddest letters that I have ever perused in my life. They were written by Elizabeth Barrett to her parents. You see, in 1846, Elizabeth Barrett married Robert Browning against her parents' wishes. They cut her off completely, totally cut her off. However, get this, she wrote them every week begging for reconciliation, She never heard back from them until one day she received a package from her mother. Elizabeth opened the box to find every one of her letters unopened, unread. Yahweh is the exact opposite of that. He's the one who writes the letters, begging people to respond to his love. He's the one who seeks reconciliation. More on that in a moment. He is the one who gives covenant love that will never be broken. Again, it it is absolutely stunning that the chosen name of the self-existent Lord reveals a desire to be in relationship with dependent, created beings. Trusting Yahweh, you gain a bonded relationship with the Almighty. By the way, have you ever thought about why? Why we think it's wrong to break faith with people? I mean, C.S. Lewis was correct. There is an inbuilt human standard. But why? Why do all humans have an inbuilt standard that they know that breaking faith, that cheating, is wrong? The only reasonable explanation is that we are created by a personal good creator. Think about it, folks. If we if we derived from nothing, faithfulness would make absolutely no sense. But since we are derived from a covenant creator, it makes perfect sense that there is a faithfulness standard that is hardwired into people. Now, look again at verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9. Do not be startled or afraid. I don't think we can read that enough this week, do you? Do not be startled or afraid. Have I not told you and declared it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God but me? There is no other rock. I do not know any. All who make idols are nothing, and what they treasure benefits no one. Their witnesses do not see or know anything, so they will be put to shame. In relationship with God, we also gain a second thing, a shameless witness. There's a brilliant contrast here. Look at this. The ones who are redeemed by the covenant creator. The covenant creator redeems people and they become his witnesses, right? But but for all other people, the situation's reversed. Look, since they make their own idols, those things serve as witnesses for the creating humans. God's witnesses never need to be ashamed. They can speak with power, with integrity, because the Almighty Lord has spoken. And he has fulfilled his words. They can point to creation. They can point to scripture. They can point to Jesus with absolute confidence. Again, that flips for those who refuse Yahweh. The created things these people worship, whether they're they're false gods or wealth or power or health or et cetera, et cetera, those things are silent. The creators who, who are trying to fill God's role themselves are inevitably ashamed The Apostle Paul summarizes this beautifully. Romans chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. You see Paul's thinking, Isaiah, isn't he? I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Amen. Let's close with one last term found in verse 6, Redeemer. Verse 6, read it again. This is what the Lord, the King of Israel and its Redeemer, the Lord of armies, says, I am the first and I am the last. There is no God but me. Yahweh is the Redeemer. His covenant relationship is redemptive. That that means it, it buys people back by faith. Human beings can be reconciled to God. Look look up here. That that mighty redeemer aspect of Isaiah 44, it's expanded in 2 Corinthians. Another passage where Paul is thinking Isaiah. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Everything is from God. I believe in God, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Everything is from God. Who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Notice the effect of redemption. Verse 17 declares that... Oh, sorry, I should have read one more passage. Hang on, hang on, it it isn't done yet. Can you back me up? Thank you, I'm so sorry. I cut it off. I'm sorry, Apostle Paul. I apologize. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Notice the effect of redemption. Verse 17 declares, the old has gone, the new has come. Probably the greatest thing that we get to observe on this earth is the change in people when they receive new life in Jesus Christ. It is absolutely amazing. Recently, I started scribbling down some of the things that new believers in Christ, new Christians say to me. That, listen, these folks don't know the Bible well yet. They don't even really know what's happened to them, but here's what they do know. They know this, Wayne, I feel different, like, like I am different. This is weird, Good weird, but weird. Looking at what I was so proud of before makes me ill now. I swear. Now, by the way, this last one, this was spoken by someone who didn't know the Bible at all. She had no idea that she's quoting Jesus' exact words from John chapter 3. Okay, She said, I swear, it's like being born again. Yes, it is. Isn't that awesome? And note this. God's redemption is not only for people. Paul was inspired to describe creation's present status this way, uh, Romans chapter 8. For we know that all creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. That comes in Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 is a passage that details the way God is going to make everything new. Not, Not just for believers in Jesus. Eventually, he's going to make all new for all creation. That's why Isaiah 65 says this in verse 17. For I will create a new heaven and a new earth. The past events will not be remembered or come to mind. The effect of redemption is that all things are or will be made new. All God's people said, amen. Now, 2 Corinthians also builds on Isaiah by exposing more about the means of redemption, the how of redemption. Our sins were transferred on to Jesus. Jesus. Jesus became sin for us so we could become holiness in him. He took our nastiness so we could accept his cleanness. He became utterly wrong on the cross so we could be made utterly right before God. I read a story about a preteen girl who was trying to understand this passage, 2 Corinthians 5. She remarked to her older brother that she just didn't get it. She didn't really understand how this could work. They talked for a while and then they dropped the subject for days. Uh, their family, by the way, has a tradition. Every Saturday, when there's not a huge virus scare going on, they go out to dinner together. Family tradition. They come home and uh, they eat popcorn and watch a movie together. Well, a few Saturdays after our heroine's conversation with her older brother, this happened. They went out to dinner, and this is a quote from the father. She had been a stinker all night. It was just one of those hormonal preteen girl episodes, but she had really spoiled the fun for everyone. When they got home, mom began to make popcorn. Dad pulled aside the kids and he said, son, your sister believes in you and confides in you. Therefore, you're going to take her punishment and go to your room. Daughter, you get to join us for movie and popcorn. Close quote. Her cool brother was in on the plan, and he willingly took her place. And suddenly, that girl understood the means of redemption, how it is that Jesus takes our place. Remember how Isaiah 44 described witnesses, right? God's people were contrasted with the witnesses of idolatry. Well, Paul picks up on that as well in 2 Corinthians, verses 18 through 20. Let's read them again. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We who are reconciled to God through Jesus are to boldly proclaim the good news of redemption through faith in Christ Jesus alone. The import of this cannot be overstated. That's why our forebears took Jesus' command in Matthew chapter 28, and they called it the Great Commission. Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them. To observe all that I have commanded you. This is the ministry of reconciliation with the Redeemer, and it's our job. In fact, it, it's in the very mission statement of your church. Even young Austin Mikoski knows that. I want you to listen as Austin Mikoski reads to you the Frisco Bible Church mission statement. Look and listen. Can you read that, please? We are uh-huh. Doing the great commission by the power of the Holy Spirit, for the glory of God. Very good. That is very good. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Now it's your turn. Let's read it all together. Everybody together. We are redeemed community. Doing the great commission by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. Awesome. Let's pray. Father, I pray for all the believers in Jesus with whom I get to worship today. I thank you for them. And I ask you that you will change us so that we will embrace our ministry of reconciliation and redemption. Of course, there are many blockades to this. The, the world works against it. The very brokenness of a fallen planet that groans in creation and has nasty viruses. Satan is against us, we know that. Our own flesh argues against it, especially the way we try to create our own gods, control everything with our fear. I pray that we will live out loud and share the good news of Jesus now more than ever. Let us keep what is foremost, foremost that we are a redeemed community and we are to do the great commission by your power, Power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. And speaking of that great commission, Lord, I pray for anyone who is studying with me today, wherever and whenever they are, that has never trusted Jesus as Savior. Oh, Almighty Father, please let them hear the message of reconciliation, that it is by faith that we are saved. That Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin on our behalf, that we might be justified. We may be made righteous before God. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in making it, you made a way for me to be reconciled. And friend, God made a way for you to be reconciled even after sin. It's by faith. Always has been and always will be. Justification is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Trust him. He died on that Roman cross for you. And he rose from the dead so that if you trust him, you, you get to trade places. You get to be the holiness of God. And then Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead, conquering even your sin and mine so that we could be with him forever as part of God's family. We get to eat popcorn and watch Netflix with God. Trust him. Right now, put your faith in Jesus. We know that what matters in trusting Christ is that your life is changed. And the Holy Spirit of God does a much better job of follow-up than I ever could. But if you believed on Jesus, please write us. We would love to engage with you and rejoice with you. Thank you. Amen.